Thank you so much. It's good to see you here tonight. If you have your copy of the Word of God, you turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 23, and we'll read in verse number 34. Just 11 words is all we're going to look at tonight. So you turn with me there. Some of you asked me, said, what have I been doing since I've left here? I, I, I've been filling in at... Uh, Central Baptist Church in, in Tarrant City, Alabama. I have the privilege every Sunday morning to preach to about 550 to 600 empty seats every, every Sunday morning. <clears throat> uh, Tarrant is, is a changing community, and Central Baptist Church used to be a great flourishing, uh, a very, very large church. They're down to about 12 or 15 folks now. Very, very... Very fine people. Median age there is about 80. Um, sweet folks. They're, they're still tr struggling with what they need to do with a building that large. Uh, and, and so uh, I'm, I'm there, and uh, we're, we're just enjoying them. I'm just now uh, getting to know who they are and learning their names. And, and they're just wonderful, sweet people. Been there for years and years and years and years and years. And you can understand the struggle that, that they're going through. You know, a transition period. And, and uh, so there's a, a, a multicultural uh, group that, that, is, that is meeting there in, in the building up there with them and helping them with, with some of their struggles. And we'll, we'll probably eventually take over the building there. So you, you can continue to, to pray for us. And <clears throat> uh, but for, for us here... Uh, in, in your mind, what I would like for you to do is, is I would like for you to, to just let us leave the, uh, the comfort of this building and the setting that we have here. Let our minds race back a little over 2,000 years to a hillside on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and there what we're going to find is we're going to find Jesus hanging on a cross. He's going to be there between two criminals. They're thieves. They're called malefactors. Uh, after his beating, his scourging, until he is beyond recognition, as Isaiah says, uh, beyond a member of a human race. Isaiah says in Isaiah 52 that his visage was marred more than any other person. That means he wasn't recognizable as anybody that belonged to the human race. Uh, his beard has been plucked from his face. He's been scourged. Crowns of thorns has been placed upon his head. And now he's been crucified in a traditional Roman fashion. And from the cross, the historian and, and physician Dr. Luke records 11 words in chapter 23, verse number 34. In fact, the only one of the gospel writers that, that records this. It just simply says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And the great love that he has for all of us. And sometimes we sing the song, or we used to, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Yeah. 
My earthly gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. So Lord, we want to look at that cross. We want to look at that crowd. And most of all, we want to look at Christ tonight. We want to see some things. You want to show us out of, out of your word tonight. We want to see what he did. We want to hear what he said and what he intended for us. And Father, when, when your word touches us, not what I say, but what you say touches our hearts, our lives, we'll be changed, we'll be different, we can leave this place. And we'll have heard from you through the Holy Spirit tonight. And we'll be different when we walk out these doors. And that'll make us better people for you. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things that, that are here that I want us to see. I want us to look at them. And so with me, just by way of cursory introduction, I want us to look at, at crucifixion just for a few moments to understand this text. We have to look at the cross. We have to look at crucifixion. And we would probably think that one of the places that that, that we, we need to look at it, we would probably need to look somewhere in the New Testament, and there we would find a picture of crucifixion. But it is such a familiar thing in the New Testament times that the gospel writers just, they don't mention anything about it at all. In fact, when, when you read what Dr. Luke is writing about it, it in, in verse number 33, just prior to the text that I read for you tonight, he said, and when they had come to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And that's just a statement that he made. He doesn't go through all of the details about crucifixion. And you probably have studied it because you're so much smarter than I am. But there are four things that the Romans had in mind. They had it, first of all, that, that it was to inflict the most pain over the longest period of time in the most conspicuous place in the most degrading fashion. Now you understand that the Roman government did not tolerate lawbreakers. They, they would probably do very good in the United States somewhere about now in the, in the 21st century. You understand about 90% of us wouldn't stand a chance under Roman government right now. You understand that, that, that when you look at, at what they did, and if you just examine the thief on the cross, you, you find out that there wasn't any second chances. There wasn't an excuse me or an uh-oh or I'll pay it back or a mom ran off with a babysitter and I got raised on the wrong side of the tracks and I was from an economic society or I came from the wrong country or was the wrong skin color or any of those excuses didn't make any difference. You were a thief, you were a malefactor, you get nailed to the cross and that ends that and we don't discuss that no more. So you understand that that's just the way it was and that, that's hard. But you understand one of the most common and familiar sights in the day of Jesus was crucifixion. The New Testament world was just full of crosses. There was a Roman slave by the name of Spartacus. You probably have seen the movie. And he was trained to be a gladiator. <clears throat> and he rises in revolt and for two years... He leads his army to march against Rome. 
He was eventually captured and 6,000 of his followers were promised that they would spare their life and could go back into slavery if they would just identify their ruler Spartacus. And one by one they began to rise and say, I am Spartacus. And Crassus, that Roman general, became so infuriated that he ordered every one of those killed. And 6,000 of them were crucified on that 200-kilometer Via Appia from Rome to Capua. That means if you started from I-65 to Montgomery, you would see cross after cross after cross on both sides of Interstate 65. That Rome says, this is what we do to traitors and lawbreakers. In 4 BC, Herod the Great died. And rebels took the city of Jerusalem. Varus, the Roman governor of Syria, had 2,000 people crucified. In the days of Jesus, when he was 10 years old, a zealot by the name of Thutius rebelled in Galilee. In the hometown of Jesus, where he lived and worked in a carpenter shop. And 10,000 of those rebels were crucified and dotted the hillside of Jesus in his backyard. In a Jewish war in A.D. 66 or 70, <clears throat> A.D. 66 to 70, if you want to understand, this was two years after the Apostle Paul was crucified and about the same time that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord Jesus. Josephus, that historian, <clears throat> says that the Roman general Titus came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the Roman temple. Oh, excuse me, the Jewish temple. <clears throat> and Josephus says that 500 Jewish people a day were crucified until there was not a tree left in Palestine that was large enough to make a cross. But the most famous crucifixion was, of all was when the day that Jesus was crucified and that Jesus was now hanging on a cross because Rome did not put up with lawbreakers. We can see how brutal crucifixion was. Now, Changing, we look at, at the crowd that was there. When you survey Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you notice that there's a crowd around the cross. You look at the onlookers and they come and, and, and they begin to, the Bible says, to, to wag their heads and spit on Jesus and, and, and to taunt him and to tempt him and say, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And they reviled against him, wagging their heads. The religious leaders began to mock him and said, He saved others, he can't save himself. The soldiers said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And even one of those criminals on the cross began to blaspheme him. And the other one began to say, Leave him alone. When Peter began to detail the counts of the cross when he wrote his epistles, began to speak in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Look at that, that, that verb, hurled insults. 
It, it's a, a verbal barrage. It's an intense verb. It's, it's like casting rocks or, 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 or throwing insults designed to cut, to wound, to injure, to hurt someone. Some guy, I don't know who he was, he didn't know what he was talking about, said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Words can wound and words can tear and words can cut. Words are, are, are like the rudders of a ship, James says. It, it, it points in directions. And it ruins people. It's like a tongue that's set on fire of hell. We call crazy people and fat and ugly and stupid. And we see how it wounds and how it maims people. And there is that crowd that is around the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just the introduction. Because the focus that, that the writer is wanting is for us to look at Jesus and see what he's like while he's hanging there on the cross. And to see, first of all, to see his attitude. Now, this is just a Hambright estimation and, a, and an assumption when I make this statement that Jesus has been awake for about 30 hours. When you follow the timeline of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's, if in, in, indeed that, that he is crucified on what we call Good Friday, he's been up since Thursday morning. All day long, if you will trace his footsteps to the upper room, and there he institutes the Lord's Supper, goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and there that he, he prays till the sweat becomes his great drops of blood, and then he continues on, and then they carries him away out of that place, and then carries him to the high priest, and then you follow the journey that he goes from Caiaphas, and, and, and then... To, to, to Pilate and from Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate and to the beating and to the scourging and to the crucifixion and, and all, all, all of that that is transpiring 30 hours has taken place no bathroom breaks, no drinks no, no hamburgers, no, no nothing just a constant trial and beating and scourging and all of these things and the Bible says that like a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not against them. The only time that Jesus spoke during that period of time was that he spoke in order that he might testify himself. And he only did that in order that he would not deny who he was. He would not deny himself. Not a word has been spoken in his defense when he was before the Sanhedrin, before he was before Pilate, before Herod, before the crowd, or to the criminals, or to the soldiers. Jesus was just silent. And Jesus hasn't spoken a word. And now he has hung on the cross. And now he is about to make his first utterance. And the crowd looks and the crowd beholds as they see the lips of Jesus as they begin to quiver. As they begin to move. 
And he, the Son of God, is about to speak. And there is an assumption on the part of those that are standing around. And they make the assumption that Jesus is about to call 12 legions of angels. Corey knows how many that is. 6,000 make a legion. 72,000 at his disposal. And the song says, to destroy the world and to set him free. He doesn't need 72,000. All he has to do is just speak the word from an omnipotent lip, and it's done. What is Jesus going to say? Will he retaliate? Will he get even? Everybody loves payback. Because we have a saying in Walker County where I come from. What goes around... Yeah, you said it. Hey, you got it here in Brookside. It comes around. You understand that. Because this is what we would do. This, this is what we have in mind. Let me show you what I mean. Some of, some of you were just a little younger. You won't remember this. I remember it. I remember it very well. Bernard Getz. Does that name ring a bell? Bernard Getz is 37 years old. He's frail, balding, wears glasses. He's a computer geek, stands about this tall, maybe 130 pounds, soaking wet, couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. But he's known as the subway vigilante. It's going down in the subway on December the 22nd, 1984, when four would-be muggers with criminal records and armed with screwdrivers surround him, and they're going to rob him until Bernard Getz reaches into his shirt pocket, coat pocket, pulls out a 38 revolver, and shoots all four of them and becomes an instant hero. This would-be robber is now a thugbuster. A popular actress sends him a love and kisses telegram. Thugbuster t-shirts appear from nowhere. A rock group writes a song in his honor. People gave and raised money for his, dis his defense. Radio talk shows are deluged with callers. And one of those talk show hosts says, the people just won't let it go. And it's no wonder he kicked the bullies where it hurts. Payback is wonderful. He clobbered them over the head. He did what most people wanted to do. Never fear, underdog is here. 
He's Superman, Robin Hood, Spider-Man, Jack Byer, all rolled into one. Because that's what we like and that's what we want to do to people who treat us wrong. That's what we want to do to the government. Don't take my guns away. I'll show you what a gun is for. <laughs> Amen? Yeah, that's, that's the way we think. But what did Jesus do? Now here's the actuality, not the assumption. He starts praying. You've got to be kidding me. Are you serious, Jesus? Here you are, able to speak a world into existence. You have the power of a spoken word. You stood on nothing and out of nothing made something and it is still something. And for you and by you all things consist. And you're just praying. But Jesus, you're not praying against them. You're praying for them. Come on now, get real. This is the 21st century. And you're living in a place that, and, and, and the reason that I pointed out this cross and this crowd is so you can see what's going on. You're wounded and bleeding, and now for sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me, and, and you're praying. Why, if it would have been us, that's what we would have been doing. Jesus, why? Can you tell me why? Well, let me tell you why. Because of who he is. You would have thought if Jesus was going to pray, Jesus would have probably went back into the Old Testament and grabbed one of David's imprecatory psalms and said, Lord, smash them in the teeth, kick them where it hurts. Do something to them. But no. Jesus said in Matthew 5.44. But I say to you. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. And persecute you. That's who Jesus is. And we better be glad. That's who Jesus is. That's the reason that he's praying, not against them, but for them, because that's who Jesus is. Because Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to save sinners and call them under repentance. That's what Jesus was all about. That's who he's bleeding and dying for. Jesus not only prayed for them because of who he is, but he did so because of who he was and because of who we were. 
He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He looked at that crowd that was down there and he saw that there was just a bunch of ignorant people that did not realize what they were doing. When I read this text, and I've read it for years and years and years and years and years, and I began to realize that there were those people that did not realize what was going on. That they were lost people and they were acting like lost people. Now, isn't that amazing? And we wonder why the world is so messed up. And the reason that the world is so messed up is because the lost people are acting like lost people. And that we can't expect them to act any other way. Let me illustrate it if I can. Years ago when I was a young boy, if you can ever imagine that, I was about 12, maybe 13 or 14 years old. I was walking everywhere I went. I kind of lived like Jesus back then because that's the way he got around. <clears throat> and I was walking and, and, and I made a little shortcut by, by side of a lady's house that we called Aunt Nisi. She wasn't my aunt. And, and everybody just called her that. And she was old, and she dipped up, and she kind of thought like this, you know, what people did back then. And, and I walked by, by her house, and as I started by her house, she had a dog named Belle, and she was just a cur dog, and she had some puppies. And, and I got about as close to here to Ricky from her, and, and the dog ran out there and just bit me right there on the leg, and it hurt, and I jumped back. And Aunt Nisi saw her bite me, and she said, did she bite you? And I said, yeah. And she said, you want me to get the gun and shoot her? Because that's what they did to biting dogs back then. Now they get them up and see if the dog got rabies from you. And, <clears throat> and, 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 and I said, no. I said, she's just acting like a dog. Because that's what mama dogs do when you get too close to their little puppies. That's the way a dog acts. A hog acts like a hog. A dog acts like a dog. And you understand that the writer in the New Testament, Peter said that the sow that is washed returns to its wallowing in the mire. And a dog returns to its own vomit. You understand that lost people act like lost people and they're acting like lost people around the cross. And you understand that Jesus prayed for them and said they don't know what they're doing. And we got a world today that doesn't know what they're doing. They don't understand us. In fact, when I began to study, and I, I'm sure that Corey has done this, that, that you take a lost person and, and bring them into church and they don't have the foggiest idea what's going on in here. You know, we use words that we call churchy words. We talk about repentance and regeneration. And, and, and we talk about all of these stuff. And they don't have the foggiest idea of what we're talking about. You know, we can talk to young people. You need to let Jesus come into your heart. And they don't, How in the world does that happen, you know? You know, they, they don't understand some of the terminology that you use. It's absolutely foreign to them. And, 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 you know, if we were to take a lost person and put him in heaven, he'd go stir-crazy after about six weeks up there when all we do is we just praise God and sing about Jesus and, and they don't understand the grace of God or the blood of the Lord Jesus and, and, and the salvation that is through him. 
and that we would be just as, as out of place in hell as a fellow that belongs in hell would be in heaven. They don't know what's going on. And so Jesus prayed for them because they don't know what they're doing. And Jesus prayed for them because that's exactly what they needed. Father, forgive them. What they needed was for forgiveness from God. Burt Bacharach, Bacharach, I can't say his name, sang a song, said, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's, that's, a, that's a real pretty song. Uh, but you can love somebody and they still go to hell. You know, you can educate them and they can still go to hell. You can get a physician and make them well and they can still go to hell. And you know, the list can go on and on and on and on and on. You can take a poor man, put him in a nice clean, clean suit, and, and you can put him in an ivory tire, and when he dies, he can still go to hell. What the real world needs is they need to have God's forgiveness in their life. Because with sin comes the, the guilt and, and, and the shame of doing wrong. And one of the things that's going on in our churches today is that we we got a crowd that that that's coming, and they're being pampered, and we're putting lipstick on the pig, and we're making it look real pretty, and when they leave and they go out and they've been pumped up with a feel good kind kind of a message, and and they get home. And they lay their head down on the bed at night. And the guilt and the shame of their life begins to come on top of them. And they find out that that just doesn't work. And they say the church isn't really making an impact in our world anymore. I grew up in, in a in a where my mother was a Catholic, and I and I understand just a little bit about Catholic and Catholicism, and the Catholic Church in a whole is is dying like like a lot of other churches are dying, and it is because that that you run down uh, to to a, a confessional booth and you sit there and say, forgive me, Father, for, for I have sinned. And, and you start naming them and naming them and naming them. And, and then he closes that curtain and, and you walk out of there. And, and, and there's nothing that's any different because he said, I absolve you from your sin. And that really didn't work. That didn't change anything. You go out and you're the same old fellow that you was when you walked in there. And pretty soon they've got that figured out. And they say, there's no sense in me doing that anymore. And it's the same way with folks that's coming to church. And the lipstick gets painted on the pig and they go out and, and, and they leave. And, and nothing's ever changed. Nothing's ever real. Because they still feel the guilt and the shame. I cheated, I robbed, I lied, I stealed, I'd done this, I did that, I did the other. And I still feel terrible about it. And there is no forgiveness from God. There is no forgiveness of myself. There's no forgiveness of the other folks that's come in about the horrible life that I'm living and the way that I'm living. And there's no transformation. There's no change. 
And Jesus said, this is what you need. And this is what the world needs. It isn't just love. It is a transformation, a changed life. And so Peter, when he begins to preach, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. And then he continued that sermon and said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's the Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut in their heart. They came under conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. Turn the whole car around. Turn your life around. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, for the forgiveness of sin, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Peter preached that Jesus was crucified and God had made him Lord in Christ, they underwent conviction And said, what shall we do? And Peter says, you need to repent. And you will be baptized because of your forgiveness of sin. And everyone that's went through faith knows Ephesians 1.7. Where it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sin. It's through Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Because it was the passion and the philosophy of Jesus as he hung there on the cross that mankind, all of mankind, should have the forgiveness of God and that this redemption was through the blood that he was shedding and that it was available and that it was available to all. And the greatest knowledge of all of mankind was to know that you can have that. Because Jesus told you how you could be forgiven by God, how you could forgive yourself, and how you forgive others. And the very next statement that is made is made by an old thief on the cross who was listening to those words. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Here was a fellow that you wouldn't give him a prayer of a chance. But a prayer is all he had. (laughs) (laughs) And a prayer was all he needed. To get into heaven. He didn't know a stinking thing about theology. He didn't know redemption. He didn't know propitiation. He didn't know remission of sins. He just knew that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And he said, I can get in on that. Remember me. When you get ready to go to heaven, I want to go too. And it worked.
And maybe you're here tonight and say, will it work for me? Yeah. It's available. And it's available to everyone that wants it. If you'll just claim it. Maybe that's what you need tonight. Maybe there is some underlying guilt, some sin, some shame that haunts you. And if you'll just come to Jesus, he'll take care of it. Father, we bow in your presence tonight to thank you. That in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Uttered it on the cross, 11 words. But oh Lord, they're just so meaningful. Dying words from a dying man are not trite. It may be few, but oh Lord, they're just so powerful for us tonight. For a thief, it felt we wouldn't give a, give a prayer for. But a prayer was all he had, and a prayer is all it took. And there may be somebody here that wants to pray a prayer. They can do it where they're seated. Oh, Lord, they can do it here at an altar, an old-fashioned altar, as we call it. More want to just get up and slip out of their seat and come bow before Jesus and say, Father, forgive me. And, Lord, it'll be taken care of. Father, you made it possible through Jesus when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Lord, use this invitation as you will. Lord, there may be some want to surrender for ministry. Some want to join the church. There may be some, Lord, that want to rededicate their lives to you. Some that want to trust you in salvation, the forgiveness of sin. Others that just want to come and talk and speak with you. Lord, do what you want to do. Let's get it done through Jesus, and we'll thank you for that.